In Luke chapter 12, I'll start reading with verse 32 down to verse 34. Jesus is speaking here. It's his sermon on the plain, uh, parallel to the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then to Revelation chapter 5, one of my favorite passages on the church. This is John writing here what he's seeing in the, the throne room in the heavenly places. And they sang a new, whoops, excuse me, oh, no, let me pick up. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and, with, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. Just a spoiler alert, in a little while I'm going to give you anybody who wants to ask any questions about the conference this past week. Uh, if you have any questions about things that happened, uh, things you didn't understand, or just things you're curious about, uh, I've got a microphone set up there, and this is just so we can record uh, things. If you have question and answer, I'm going to give you that, that opportunity to do that. Uh, no requirements. By the way, uh, because it is being recorded and some people won't have all the context, don't refer to anybody at the conference by name. You can just uh, refer to the minister in the conference uh, and that's probably all that we need uh, so, that, uh, 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 so that people who pick up won't have to have the context to understand uh, some of the questions and answers and things like that. So uh, uh, anyway, uh, many of you know I'm a, a real fan uh, and a, uh, of the history of revival. And I've done a, quite a bit of reading about revival over the centuries and and different things that have happened and different moves of uh, the Holy Spirit in the in the Church of Jesus Christ uh, and uh, and different things that God has done in history. It's very interesting to look at history. And one of the things I've noticed uh, as I've read over the years, one of the things I've noticed is that many times history gets revised quite a bit. Now, that's nothing to be completely shocked about because everybody who writes history revises history. It's just a, it's a, a, a truth that everybody who writes history revises history. They tell it from a slightly different perspective, a slightly different standpoint. But you notice many times when we read the history of revival or even if we read the history of our Reformed theological tradition, some of the later historians actually rewrote some of the uncomfortable bits uh, that happened. You know, for example, John Knox, 
who was uh, the great reformer from Scotland, uh, who is the one who set uh, the Scottish church uh, on the path where it was and, and kind of directed toward Presbyterianism and all those kinds of things. Uh, many people don't realize that John Knox was known as an apostle. And yet a lot of times people, when they, when they talk about apostles, it, it's something like, well, they were, in the old, uh, they were in the New Testament and now they're here again today, but there haven't been apostles throughout history. And that's simply not true. Uh, and the church certainly has understood uh, that apostolic calling to have existed at many points throughout history. And yet, some of the writers in the 1800s who didn't like the idea that there could be contemporary apostles would change some of that language and how they would record what people said about John Knox. Uh, and that's happened at, at several different points of history. Same is true in terms of revival history. Many times people who have written revival history will edit out some of the more uncomfortable things about revival history. Like one of the things that's commonly happened in the history of revival is something in the days of the Hebride in revival they called swooning. Uh, today, many people would say they're being slain in the spirit, but it's basically falling because of the power of the Holy Spirit resting upon you. Uh, and yet that's happened not only in the Hebridean revival, not only in some you know, recent moves of the Lord, uh, but throughout history at various different places. And yet, many times when people write the histories, they kind of edit these things out because they're a bit uncomfortable and sometimes they're, they're hard to explain. And sometimes they've edited them out because they didn't want to detract from Jesus and talking about Jesus. And, uh, and so it's really important to understand that when we're looking at history, that many times we're not getting the full story. Well, almost never are we getting the full story, and we need to look at different sources and different uh, people and, and what they're writing and things to come to a deeper understanding of what God has done. When we fast forward a bit today and people start talking about revival and moves of the Holy Spirit uh, unfortunately, a lot of times people tend to focus on physical things that can happen to people. You know, for example, the swooning that I mentioned, or sometimes shaking, or, or different kinds of things like that. Uh, and the reason is that a lot of people, what they want, they want a sign. They want a visible indicator that something is happening. And if they don't get the sign if they don't get the visible indicator that something is happening, then they question, is something really happening? Uh, and this is really great for people who get signs pretty easily. You know, I, I know some people, you just say, Holy Spirit, and they fall. Uh, you know, it just doesn't have to be anything going on. It just happens. You know, and other people are desperate for some kind of indicator of the power of God moving on their lives and nothing happens. Uh, by the way, oftentimes when that's the case, it's because the person in whom nothing happens is being called to be a leader. Uh, but that's kind of a side note. Uh, but what people are looking for is a sign. They want a sign that God is moving. They want a sign that God is operating. They want a sign of God's kingdom. We've been talking about the kingdom uh, the last number of weeks, and we'll, we will for a few more weeks now. We've been talking about the kingdom, 
And we've talked about the kingdom as God's loving rulership active in the world today. And the kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And Jesus himself is the king of the kingdom. So the kingdom has come and Jesus is the king. Excuse me. And so people are hungry. They're longing for some kind of sign that the kingdom has come. Okay, it's one thing to say the kingdom has come and Jesus is the king. And it's quite another to say, okay, where's the proof? Where's the evidence? Where is the sign that Jesus is king and the kingdom has come? And many times people look for some kind of physical manifestation, uh, some kind of miracle, uh, something dramatic, something significant to happen to say this is the proof, this is the validation that the kingdom has come and Jesus is the king. And so if you're looking for that, and many times people will go to events like last week, hungry for some kind of indicator that the kingdom has come and Jesus is the king. And there is a sign that the kingdom has come and Jesus is the king that is operating around the globe today. But it's not a shaking it's not a falling, it is the church. It is the church of Jesus Christ. We are the sign of the kingdom. Our existence demonstrates that the kingdom has come and Jesus himself is the king. God has called us together, he's drawn us together as his people, to be a visible indicator in the world today that the kingdom has come, Jesus is the king, and that we are the kingdom. Now that's not very popular to say, and most people wouldn't know, most Christians wouldn't know all the different levels of debate and discussion and things like that. It's very popular today in a lot of circles to say you have the kingdom of God and the church is a bit of that kingdom, but it's not the kingdom. But notice what John sees, what the heavenly angels declare there in Revelation. John says, the, the angels say, that Jesus has redeemed us by his blood from every nation, from every language, from every people group. And he has made us a kingdom and priests to our God. It does not say he's made us part of the kingdom. It does not say that we're a little corner of the kingdom. It says that Jesus, the king, has made us his people a kingdom, as well as priests to our God. And furthermore, it says that we shall reign on the earth. And we talked about that in the summer, and I said that that is a prophecy about the end times, but God is working through us now to fulfill that reality. We are called as the people of God, as the kingdom of God, we are called to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. 
And we can do that by having physical children, or we can do that by having spiritual children. But the idea of subduing the earth is not to impose our will on the earth, but to advance God's loving rulership everywhere we are and everywhere we go. And as the kingdom, that means it's not just city temple that is the kingdom. It's all the people of God, the whole church of Jesus Christ, that is the kingdom. So we must recognize this reality in other Christians and other churches and even in other ministries that God, Jesus, has redeemed us by his blood and has made us together a kingdom. And those going into the future, and mark my words on this, going into the future, the ministries that acknowledge and embrace this fully will flourish. The ministries that fail to do so will not. And we must be sure that we're one of those ministries that do so. So we together are a visible sign of the kingdom. I mean, after all, goodness gracious, uh, what could possess us to get up early on a Sunday morning when most of us probably would rather stay in bed? It's because Jesus is our king. And we are rising together as in obedience to the king. We are that visible sign. Now, this, another dynamic of this, though, is that we are not only a visible sign of Jesus as king and we are the kingdom, but we are also a visible sign of a confrontation of kingdoms. The kingdom of God in Jesus Christ is at odds with the kingdoms of the world and the kingdoms of Satan. And the kingdom of Satan. We are a sign of the confrontation. Where we sit right now, we're a sign of the major battlefield. You know, we're looking at, you know, next to us, a building that was bought by, by Hindus. And that's an indicator of all the false religions of the world. We got behind us a brand new temple, or behind me in front of you, a brand new temple to the god Mammon in terms of wealth. We have, you know, kind of next to us uh, a bit of a temple to liberal Christianity. And across the road from us, we have a, a bit of a, 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 a temple to uh, humanism and naturalism. And we're in the midst of all of this we are confronting this. We are saying we operate by different principles. We exist here and we say Jesus is our king. We honor Queen Elizabeth in a temporal way, but Jesus is our king. I honor the parliament, but Jesus is my king. I recognize that uh, and honor the office of the president of the United States, but Jesus is my king. And that is a reality, and that's why the church is persecuted in places like China. China would be very happy for Christians to say, oh, we honor the Chinese government as the ruler in our land, and we will just worship Jesus privately. They would be happy with that. 
But why does China persecute the church? It's because the existence of the church is a confrontation, is a declaration that Jesus is the king. And so our very existence is a threat. It's a challenge. It's a declaration. It's a statement that there is one king, Jesus Christ, and one kingdom, his kingdom, and we are the subjects of that kingdom. We are that kingdom over against all the kingdoms of this world as well as the kingdom of darkness. And so it's no wonder that it's a struggle. It's no wonder it's a fight many times to grow the church. It's no wonder that churches that exist that way and see themselves that way are often marginalized. I mean, in our world today, people are very happy for you to have whatever religious belief you want on your own, but they are not very happy for you to say that this is the one true religion that all people should have because there's only one king, his name is Jesus, who died on the cross, rose from the dead, redeemed people by his blood, and is advancing God's loving rulership in the world today through his people. But that is our reality. That is our reality. And we must remember that no matter what. We together are that visible sign of the kingdom. Now, as we exist as a kingdom as well, we always must operate in accordance with kingdom protocols and kingdom etiquette. And this is an area where a lot of Christians, they just don't think very much. Now, a lot of times we try to live as a kingdom, but we want to operate by worldly principles. We want to operate by worldly principles. So we say, well, the idea here is for us to do the best marketing and whoever can do the best marketing and get the most people into the church, you know, then, you, then you're a victor if you do marketing. Or, you know, we need to express our power politically and motivate ourselves to rise up and uh, speak into the political process. Or we need to amass money and use the money in such a way that will accomplish what we feel are kingdom purposes. Now, those things aren't inherently wrong. But so often, churches start depending on those things. They depend on their numbers. They depend on, on outward things happening in order to operate, in order to believe that they're functioning by these kingdom principles, these kingdom protocol. But the kingdom protocol oftentimes is quite different. And there are a number of things, and I, I can't even begin to go into all of them, but I want to mention a few things uh, just to get your juices flowing. Now, one of the kingdom protocols is you build up the body of Christ. You build up the body of Christ. Now, it's been very interesting, and even, even uh, this past week it was very interesting, and it wasn't coming from uh, the, the leaders uh, of the ministry, but I noticed a couple of times from platform, you know, that, that there were some people maybe taking an offering or something like that, that were just starting to criticize the body of Christ. They were criticizing the church. Uh, not this church, but just church in general. Uh, and I noticed that there was a, a, a bit of a difference in how things flowed on those nights. Because we have a responsibility as a kingdom protocol to build up the body of Christ. 
That's why publicly we do not criticize ministries here. We do not criticize other churches. Doesn't mean we agree with all the other churches. We disagree with many. But our role is not to tear them down. Our role is to build them up. And that's a kingdom protocol. And you are going to see this more and more in the future that churches and groups that build up the body of Christ, that build up the church, they will flourish. Those that tear down will not. And things will happen because God's not going to tolerate that any longer. Uh, another kingdom another kingdom protocol. Uh, honor your father and mother. Now you might think, okay, wait a second. What does honoring my father and mother have to do with all of this? Obviously, in this case, it's not necessarily about honoring your own father and mother. But notice what it says, honor your father and mother that it may go well for you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Now, in a church like this, who's the father and mother? You know, it's Karen and me. And I'm not saying that because I'm exalting myself over anybody. Uh, you all know me. You know that I don't do that. That's not my attitude or anything like that. And we don't make a big deal of that, but that is our reality. And over the years, we've seen a really big difference for different churches and ministries that use our building those that honor us, and I never seek honor. I'm not after honor. You know, I've said before that anyone who goes after honor is not worthy of honor. So I'm not going after honor. I don't seek it. But honor, honoring the father and mother is for our benefit, not for their benefit. That it may go well. And we've seen here time after time in the church that people who honor mom and dad in the church, those ministries do well, and those that don't struggle. And we've seen this time after time after time. It's because it's a kingdom, it's a kingdom protocol. Or they have another one. Uh, this is everybody's favorite. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's kingdom protocol. And it means that we cooperate with one another. It doesn't mean that, uh, you know, we be like the heckle and jekyll. I don't know if you ever saw those cartoons with the birds uh, where heckle would say, no, after you. They'd open the door, after you. No, 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 after you. No, after you. No, after you. No, 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 I insist, after you. No, I insist, after you. Uh, and they just go back and forth like that. That's not what submission is about. It's cooperating with one another to accomplish God's good to accomplish the advancement of God's kingdom. Another kingdom protocol, keep your agreements. We've seen many times that groups that will come in, they'll make an agreement to do one thing and they'll do something completely different uh, and it doesn't go well for them. Another kingdom protocol is that we are to serve one another, but we are to serve among one another. Jesus said, when he said, he said, I am among you, as one who serves. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, I'm not above you. I'm not below you. I'm in your midst. And when we serve one another, we serve one another, not as above, not as below, but in the midst of one another. That means we're all, in a sense, on that level playing field together. We're all part of the same family. We're all part of the same kingdom. Another Kingdom protocol is to 
to operate out of humility. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The important things with all of these, and you can see there, there are quite a number of others that come through the scripture. The issue is that we are a kingdom and we need to operate together by kingdom protocol. And the reason for this is not so that you know, somebody can get their way. It's, 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 it is simply so that the enemy cannot have a foothold in our midst. When we remember that we are in the midst of a massive conflict, that we together are a sign, an indicator that there is a kingdom and Jesus is the king and we are that together by virtue of who we are in Christ Jesus. When we remember that, we remember that operating by kingdom protocol is absolutely essential. Otherwise, it can have very difficult uh, and even disastrous consequences. I kind of think a little bit about driving on the Autobahn in Germany. And I, I love to drive on the Autobahn in Germany, especially uh, the parts that are, are sparsely populated and don't have a lot of traffic because then you can go fast. And I like to go fast. Uh, you know, it's, it's a lot. If I got the right car, you know, I had one time I had this little, this is kind of a bunny trail. One time I had this little Ford Focus. Uh, it had probably the smallest engine ever in a Ford Focus. And so I'd get out on the, on the Autobahn and it's like, I mean, it just, it was going, I, I could have I walked faster than this car was going, I think. Uh, and it was terrible. Uh, it wasn't fun. But then uh, uh, not too long ago, I had an Audi A4, a new one that was very nice. And it didn't make any sounds at all. But the thing is, when you're going fast, there are certain things that you have to observe. And if you mess up going fast, there are serious consequences. You have to observe the right protocols about which side of the road you're going to drive on, about how you pay attention to other drivers, about making sure that you don't use the time while you're driving as an opportunity to catch up on your reading. I mean, you might kind of laugh at that, but I, I've been in the States sometimes when the long motorway journeys in the States where I'll overtake somebody who is reading their novel while they're driving their car. <laughs> you can't do that on the Autobahn. You know, death will result. So you have to operate by certain protocols for your own safety, for your own security, and for your own effectiveness uh, and that's why these things are so very important. We need to remember that Jesus has brought in a kingdom. He said the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus is the king. Jesus has brought in the kingdom. And by his blood, he's redeemed us and made us this kingdom. And that's the reality that we are living in as the people of God. Now, I wanted to give some uh, opportunity, if anybody had any questions about the conference this last week, uh, about what happened, uh, any different uh, manifestations or things like that that you saw, and you wanted to ask a question, if you wanted to be brave and come up to the microphone, that would be helpful. I guess you wouldn't absolutely have to do that. You could say, call your question out very loudly, uh, and I would try to answer it. But I did promise a few people that I would give an opportunity for that today. So... 
while I'm, I'm talking so there's not a lot of dead space. Any questions? Any questions on that? So, you know, sometimes you wonder, uh, definitely the the group last week was from a different uh, stream of Christianity, uh, one that tends sometimes to be a bit noisier. And, uh, you know, and and if you're not used to that, it, it can be a little bit unnerving sometimes. But it's just different ways of, of dealing with similar realities. Uh, by the way, simply because you say something isn't, doesn't mean it necessarily so. You know? So simply because you say the atmosphere is changing doesn't really mean the atmosphere is changing. Uh, one of the things that we have, one of the reasons why ministries like that are effective here is because we as a church have been spending uh, almost countless hours in the place of prayer. Having the house of prayer, having a a history, a legacy of prayer over two decades now almost, uh, is very powerful. And then when you add that to the reality of who this church has been in the city since 1640, committed to the city, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the city, everything like this, these events that happened last week and the powerful things that go on are based on, they're built on these foundations. There's never a sense of people coming into a vacuum and all of a sudden this never was there and now it is there. There's always history, or almost always history, that God is building on when he does events like this. Uh, And we need to acknowledge that and respect that uh, and embrace that history because a lot of times it's all the things that have happened behind the scenes that make what happened uh, in front of you possible. One of the other exciting things that happened uh, for me on Friday night uh, was where uh, the minister prayed for probably close to 200 people uh, to receive the spiritual gift of evangelism. Now, if you go back and you read that uh, or watch that, I think it's on YouTube, uh, you'll notice that a couple of times they, they speak about uh, the office of evangelist. Uh, that doesn't exist biblically. Uh, there's a lot of teaching in the world today that talks about that office of elder, office of apostle, uh, office of evangelist, office of pastor. The word office is not in the Bible. Uh, that concept is not a biblical concept. The, the only reason that was used It was used in post-Constantinian Christianity. In other words, after Constantine's conversion, uh, that language became popular. That's after the year 300. That language became popular, but that's not biblical language. Uh, In the Bible, when you look at places like Ephesians 4.11, where uh, Paul talks about how Jesus is given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, you're seeing unfolding there a bit of a dynamic that I like to describe kind of exists on four levels. Uh, Level one, and let's take evangelism, for example. Level one, we are all, as Christians, required to evangelize. That's what God tells us. Every one of us needs to share our faith, whether it's sharing your faith with your kids or your coworkers, whoever that is. Every Christian has a responsibility to evangelize. 
But then the Bible also talks about, I think, a gift of evangelism. And the gift of evangelism is a spiritual gift, an enablement of the Holy Spirit that helps you share your faith effectively uh, with real impact. And then there are some people who are so highly gifted with the gift of evangelism, and maybe they're really skilled with that as well, that they become kind of like an evangelistic ministry. In other words, they operate in the gift so consistently that they can even build up a ministry around that gift. Uh, The minister that was here this last week, that's what he had done up until this point in time. He had a really strong ministry of evangelism because he had a spiritual gift of evangelism. And that ministry of evangelism, people had begun to take notice of that and begun to support that ministry. And then you have the, the next level up, and that's the, uh, the five-fold uh, gift of evangelism, or the 411, Ephesians 411, role of evangelist. And the evangelist is given to the body of Christ to build up the body of Christ and to prepare God's people for works of service. And what we were seeing this last week is that God was using the minister and he was actually moving him from a ministry of evangelism, causing him to begin to step forward, step up into the fivefold evangelist role in the body of Christ. And that's why we had the prayer for people uh, to, uh, for him to pray for people to receive a spiritual gift of evangelism because fivefold ministers tend to duplicate themselves, tend to raise other people up in that. And so this was something that uh, Karen and I spoke over his life in a meeting we had together on Friday, and then Friday night he walked that out, and it was really exciting. Uh, and it just shows us, for us as a church, it's a bit of how we operate to advance people into ministry and to release them and to be part, to be a catalytic influence in their lives and in their ministry so that they will go farther and they will become stronger and become more effective, not only for places like City Temple, but throughout the body of Christ. And that's part of the way that we kind of promote kingdom purposes. Well, I've, I've kind of talked enough, unless there's any, any questions, those were some of the things that I wanted to, to cover. If you have any questions about things last week you want to ask me personally, uh, feel free to do so. It's really exciting when we have different kinds of ministries here at, at City Temple, uh, but we always must remember that we together are the kingdom, and our role is to see God's loving rulership advance through our lives where God has placed us together seeing God's kingdom come and God's will done on this earth as it is in heaven. Oh, Marcos has a question here. Okay. I have a question I want to put on. I think it's really encouraging what we saw this week happen here in City Temple. And you can feel so fired up and, and encouraged. And I mean, people were going out to pray for healing afterwards as well. We saw it on the streets, people. Um, but what could you, how could you help those who maybe pray for healing and don't see anything happen, and even they're praying, you know, maybe for a very long time. I think, especially if you're an evangelist or you've got the 
a passion to see people healed and you don't see it happen. Um, how, how do you work that out? How do you help to not be discouraged? Uh, what things could you advise for that? Maybe help others to some questions as well to stir up with them. Yeah, uh, the, you know, the question comes, how can, you know, how, how can you help people who are called to evangelism, called to pray for the sick? What happens when you're not seeing people healed? I mean, one of the big frustrations for me, believing in healing and the fact that I'm sick, uh, you know, is always a bit of a challenge. And the key thing is we always need to continue to pray. We always need to continue to press in. Uh, don't give up persevere, you never know what God is going to do. We also need to remember that there are a lot of factors that influence our effectiveness in any area. Say, if you want to share the good news about Jesus, uh, if the people you're sharing with really don't care and they don't want you to share with them, obviously nothing will probably happen. But if somebody comes up to you and says, oh, I need to know, how do I get saved? How do I follow Jesus? Then that's pretty, a pretty good sign that you should go ahead and share the gospel with them and that probably they are going to respond. You know, in the same way, you could walk around and start trying to heal a bunch of sick people just because they're sick. But if they don't want to be healed, and some people don't, uh, or if they don't have a hunger to be healed, or don't even have an expectation that they could be healed, many times they're not. And so in those situations, sometimes we have to change uh, a bit of the atmosphere, the attitude, to make them more open or receptive. I mean, we did that this past week by telling stories of what God was doing. Uh, but you can do that uh, just about any time. Uh, but it, sometimes it takes time, and you have to build up a sense of, of hope or expectation, and sometimes there's reasons you don't know what's going on, but you just have to pers persevere in what you feel God is telling you. Uh, and then there are times that sometimes some people have a spiritual gift of healing, some people don't. And people who have a gift of healing will be more effective. But we're all called to pray for healing, whether or not we have the gift. Uh, so that's just a few of the ideas. So I think we're kind of out of time, uh, and I want to go ahead and close maybe with a song of worship. Uh, just, we'll just do one song. We'll do uh, Here I Am to Worship, uh, just a, a song. But before we do, let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much. Thank you that you've given us the ability to influence the larger body of Christ, the larger expression of your kingdom. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to be more and more effective as we do that. Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for the gifting and calling that is upon us. Thank you for the apostolic dimension to this church throughout its entire history. I pray, Father, that uh, we would see you do amazing things in our midst. And Lord, we still pray for that revival, for real, genuine, historic revival. Not just a group of meetings, but an actual, full-on, manifestation of your Holy Spirit drawing hundreds if not thousands of people to follow Jesus. We love you and we praise you and we thank you for all this. In Jesus' name, amen.